The right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness may be the most basic of human rights, but it is often a privilege reserved to the white men who conceived it. While this right has extended to others over centuries of activism, it is actively restricted and denied to those who live in non-white bodies, especially women. Hello, humans. Welcome to Ish Matters, where I talk about things that matter, from mental health to politics to current issues. I'll be drawing upon very personal experiences, academia, and a diverse selection of opinions to create these sometimes hard and uncomfortable podcasts. Because I believe it's through discomfort that we grow and discover, so get comfortable. We're about to get uncomfortable. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back. Today I have a very special guest, uh, actually a research partner, that we've been exploring some really cool topics together, and I will let him introduce himself, actually. Hi, I'm Callan Wallace. Um, I'm an undergrad student at American University studying political science. Awesome. And today we're actually here to discuss prejudice in the medical industrial complex, specifically by POCs, women's experiences as patients, physicians, research subjects, and kind of like the historical roots of all of that. And for the people who aren't necessarily familiar with the term by POC, other people say BIPOC, it means black indigenous people of color. It's an, it's an inclusive term that is used in place of people of color just to encompass all identities that pretty much aren't white. So throughout this, I really want to explore the issue of medical mistrust, especially in regards to by POC women, their roots, implications, and their impact on health outcomes. So I'm going to argue that medical mistrust plays a pivotal role in perpetuating disparate, desperate, disparate. I always struggle with that word, honestly. <laughs> um, disparate negative health outcomes, and it's a result of both historical mistreatment and modern implicit bias in medicine. Mm. And furthermore, we're also arguing that medical mistrust is a preventable and mitigatable aspect of health disparities, and it begins with acknowledging historical treatment of BIPOC women and their role in, the med in medical knowledge production. And with this, another point, tackling all systems of oppression and structural racism is the ultimate goal. Yet there are tangible solutions we can employ in our move towards it. Um, so this can look like reducing barriers for BIPOC women in pursuing professions in medical fields. But, Thank you for outlining all of that. So, but, but Rania, yes. um, before we delve deeper into this topic, I want to make sure that all of our listeners are on the same page with some of the key terms that we're going to be using throughout this podcast. Mm -hmm. So the first is intersectionality. It was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989, and it's used as an analytical framework that helps us understand how the aspects of a person's social categorizations, such as race, gender, and class, are responsible for overlapping in systems of discrimination. And the second is biopower. This was coined by Michel Foucault in 1976, and it describes how power is exercised through the management or control of populations. So this can be health, education, and housing, and they're all mediums which biopower may be exerted. Absolutely, yeah. I thank you for outlining those. I mean, but I, I want us to really be thinking, especially when you mentioned biopower, I want us to be thinking of the social determinants of health. 
And if you're not familiar with that term, it's something we use in the public health world a lot. And they're basically socially collaborative factors outside of traditional healthcare systems that are independent, partial causes of an individual's health status. And so what that really means in simple terms is they are things not relating to your direct health that affect your health. The World Health Organization's organization gives really good examples such as employment, housing conditions, social exclusion, um, availability and access to public health programs, your gender, sex, and sexual orientation, globalization, health systems, urbanization, pollution, and so on and so forth. Obviously, there are many, many, many endless factors, but those are some of the most important ones that we need to be thinking about when we're thinking of people's health and the different things that actually impact their health aside from their genetics and their family history and their lifestyle. Thank you, Rania. So I want to start how intersectionality looks for BIPOC women. And so we thought, what a better way to do this than building upon Kimberly Crenshaw's podcast episode. And of course, Kimberly Crenshaw was the one who coined the term intersectionality. Yes. Um, so this podcast, Black Women's Health Through the Twin Pandemics, is part of her series on intersectionality matters. And here she explores Black women's experiences as patients, physicians, and pretty much where it all began. Ah, yes, what a powerful episode. I love that episode. And if you haven't checked out her podcast, please do. I mean, it's very informative. We'll link it below. Yes, we will. (laughs) Um, But not only do we get some insight into Black female physicians' experiences in their field in this episode, but we also get to know how Black females in general have been treated in the medical system throughout U.S. history. And I want to specifically start by talking about the death of Suzanne Moore, which actually Kimberly Crenshaw uses as her starting point as well, um, because it's a more recent example of how intersectionality can be fatal. And one more person might, I think more more people will resonate with Dr. Suzanne Moore's deaths rather than going back directly to historical examples and starting there. Um, So for those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Suzanne Moore, she was a black American physician who lost her life in December 2022. And all of a sudden, yes, we will treat your pain. You have to show proof that you have something wrong with you in order for you to get the medicine. I put forward and I maintain if I was white, I wouldn't have to go through that. So that was actually a really tragic clip from Dr. Suzanne Moore's last words um, before she passed. Uh, I mentioned before inserting the clip that it was December 2022. I actually meant December 2020. This was kind of early on in the pandemic, but wow, it's such a powerful, powerful clip. Um, But yeah, Dr. Suzanne Moore, like many other African-Americans, had died after infection of COVID-19, which could have very well been prevented if the medical team had actually listened to her. Um, She did not die because her condition was inherently worse than her white counterparts, nor did she die as a result of an unpreventable progression of her symptoms. She died because physicians failed to view her as a credible source of information for what was going on inside of her own body. When she expressed pain, they accused her of being a narcotic-seeking addict. When she pleaded for treatment for her worsening condition, she was ignored and told to go home multiple times. A black woman doesn't feel pain. No, she doesn't require or deserve the same treatment as her white counterparts, and she's left to die in silence. Those are the kind of stereotypes we see, and they are fatal, and they exist. And they're hard to hear, but we need to talk about them. Um, 
And again, if she's not silent, she's deemed aggressive. And if she speaks, she intimidates. And even in her dying body, I mean, you can hear it in her clip, she's dying. She's still viewed as a threat and a narcotic seeking drugs. And of course, that experience is paralleled by the experience of many BIPOC individuals, men and women, where their bodies are policed, disregarded, and left to wither, all justified by racist and sexist stereotypes, which we really, Kellen and I, want to highlight in this episode. And these stereotypes that we're referring to, they're not a recent manifestation of racism, nor are they merely a historical issue. Women of color endure everyday exposures to stressors of belonging to a socially marginalized group, all contributing to something we call weathering, which is, if you're not familiar with the weathering hypothesis, it suggests that black women's bodies age faster and experience a physiologic wear and tear due to chronic stress linked to racism and sexism, their intersectionality. The weathering hypothesis offers an explanation as to why black women suffer worse health outcomes and higher rates of premature death than their white counterparts, but that doesn't mean it's not preventable. Yes, as Callan mentioned earlier, of course, that tackling systems of oppression is the ultimate goal, but we can't achieve that now. It's not an easy or short-term process. Um, but in the meantime, we can learn about what ways we can make their health better. And that starts by listening to them. So all of this, along with the lack of adequate medical care, contributes to what Crenshaw calls the black woman's erasure. Um, and I think that's very powerful. So, you know, I feel like this goes back a very long time. And I kind of, mm -hmm. I know that Callan has um, an opinion about where this all starts. So I'll let Callan jump in and say something. So even, excuse me, even as late as the 1990s, medical students learned genetic differences in race. And even now, medical students in practice are given two pieces or more of information about a patient, their age and their race, and not much else. How then will they interpret data suggesting that black women suffer um, some illness at higher rates, any given illness, without being taught about social determinants of health and weathering, as Rania mentioned, an implicit bias, um, they are only left to assume that it is in fact a genetic difference. Mm. The colonization of medicine runs deep and understanding the history of black women in medicine is essential in moving forward. Without knowledge of how medical knowledge was produced in the first place, we cannot effectively challenge the false assumptions and we can't correctly educate the next generations of physicians. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we see that class, education, social status, and geography all have not insulated black women from experiencing the intersectionality of sexism and racism. And this is all compounded by the injustice that was, um, actually, I like this term, it was dubbed misogynoir in 2010 by a black feminist called Moya Bailey, as she addressed the misogyny and racism directed towards black women in pop culture. But I think we can use this term more generally now um, because black women have always and continue to suffer tragic health outcomes and preventable and premature death due to this intersectionality. So to understand the full scope of why the condition of black women remains as such, despite our medical and social advances, as you said, I think we need to dig deeper into the history and the history of black women's bodies and voices in medical knowledge production. And this can really be rooted back to slavery. I mean, even if we look at gynecology, how James Marion Sims, who's often dubbed the father of modern gynecology, 
um, which I think that title needs to be removed, uh, he actually perfected his surgical techniques and discoveries related to women's reproductive health on black female slaves. There is a lot of contestation about whether they could consent or not because of their position and the power dynamics, but in all, these women were reduced to subjects and objects, not unlike the men in the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, not unlike the women in Guatemala, and many, many more examples of unethical human uh, research. But why is it important here to note this as a nation? Um, why is it important to explore how, even with expanded policies and regulations in medical research to protect these vulnerable populations, we continue to fail Black women? And I want to extend this. We continue to fail by POC women. What do you think, Callan? So I think it's it's really neat how you brought up kind of the history um, behind um, by POC women, Black women in specificity. But so, and I think this really illustrates how beliefs about racial differences that justified slavery, um, they didn't cease to exist when slavery was, slavery was ab abolished in around 1865. Mm -hmm. So they're obviously still taught and they still linger in implicit, for implicit forms. And this includes the health sphere. So especially tolerance for pain um, is one of these things that continues to influence how doctors think about and treat people who are black. Um, black people continue to receive less painkillers and accurate diagnosis, underdiagnoses, and are underprescribed, again, essential prescriptions for their ailments. These malpractices are inextricably linked to physician implicit bias, which is rooted back to that aforementioned, to those aforementioned medical texts that laid the foundation for the medical professionals of today. I absolutely agree. That's such a good point. And, and for those of you who are not familiar with implicit bias, um, it is basically the bias you are unaware that you have, but still manifests in your actions and behaviors and speech. And so, as you said, Callan, I mean, if we're teaching genetic difference and these lingering ideas about racial differences in medical schools, of course, doctors are going to carry these implicit biases, and that's going to affect how they treat their patients based on the patient's race. And I think this brings up, I think uh, one of the physicians, Dr. Wyatt from Kimberly Crenshaw's podcast, illustrates this in such a powerful, powerful sentence. Um, and she says, and I speak a lot about being both the oppressed and the oppressor as a black woman OBGYN. And I've also stated that honestly, one of the best places to go to harm black women and never be held accountable, I believe, a police officer and a physician. We lack accountability. What a powerful statement indeed. And I mean, I can talk forever about that statement, but um, I do want to get to more topics because we have limited time and so much to talk about. So we've been talking this whole time about black women in particular, but of course, we want to explore BIPOC women in general in the medical industrial complex. And unfortunately, my expertise kind of, kind of cuts off at um, women who identify as Black. And so I'm going to jump to Callan. And I know you did some amazing research exploring Indigenous women's experiences in medicine. So talk to us about that and how that parallels what we've been talking about. 
so a lot of my previous research focused on like institutional barriers that indigenous women, um, specifically in the United States, face in accessing medical care. So this can incorporate aspects like financial barriers, the poor facilities that are on um, Native American reservations, and even the physical location of some indigenous women from medical practices. So some reservations in the United States are massive, but they only have one area where people can get treated for anything. So as some physicians, like could be hundreds of miles um, from the people that need their help. And so this is just like the aspect of geography that you mentioned before. Um, with that, so originally part of my focus was how such barriers impacted um, by POC, excuse me, um, indigenous women specifically, their access to abortion and reproductive care. And of course, the hurdles of abortion and reproductive care can be felt by pretty much all women across lines of class and race, but um, because of intersectionality, it restricts even further. And it's been severely restricted and undermined by countless state legislatures who seek to overturn the landmark ruling of Roe v. Wade from 1973. So for Native American women, this impacts them arguably more than any other demographic. Could you, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but um, I am personally not familiar with Roe v. Wade. Do you wanna kind of explain what exactly that is? So Roe v. Wade was the landmark ruling that um, Jane Roe kind of, she went to the Supreme Court, she wanted to get an abortion. Um, Texas law wouldn't let her. Mm -hmm. um, appealed up to, up to the Supreme Court and they ruled in favor of Jane Roe and kind of legalized abortion oh. um, in the United States. Now, in subsequent years, this has obviously been, been restricted and it is actually being restricted a lot in 2022 and 2021 last year by state legislatures. Um, so pretty much today, in some areas, Roe v. Wade is in danger of being overturned. But I'm glad you asked that because those restrictions can be seen um, in the federal government too. Mm. Now, 26 states prohibit abortion coverages, abortion coverage rather, and plans offered through the public option known as the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And so obviously the Affordable Care Act is for all Americans who can access it. But so you consider that and you're like, wow. Supposedly. <laughs> yeah, supposedly. You're like, wow, that's not good because it over overwhelmingly affects lower income women mm. who, because lower income people are the ones who are predominantly on Obamacare. But then consider this, a lot of Native American women who are too lower income as well, get their health care through the Indian Health Service or IHS which it's a government mandated healthcare that's existed long before the ACA that people tend to forget about. And it's provided to certain federally recognized tribes as a sort of reparation for their historically atrocious treatment by the US government. Again, nobody talks about the IHS. Um, yeah, honestly, I, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, it's so it's similar to the Affordable Care Act in that it's a public option. Right. And because those of those 26 states that I mentioned that prohibit abortion coverage um, through the ACA. The same goes for the IHS because it's also federally funded. Wow. Um, so it's subject to the same policies that restrict Obamacare recipients 
from using their plans um, to receive abortions and other reproductive care. Wow, talk about the difference between equality and equity, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, that's really important. So correct me if I'm wrong, but um, isn't it also true that the US government forces indigenous women to be sterilized? I'm, I'm not completely sure. Again, I'm not an expert on the subject, but I think you mentioned it at some point during our, our conversations and research. Yeah, so as recently as the 60s and the 70s, the IHS, yes, the, the government, sterilized up to 25% of Native American women who were of childbearing age without their consent. And so although this explicit practice has stopped, per se, in the United States, Quote unquote. yeah, at least to the um, what government officials say, um, Native American women are still subjected to, subjected to grave disparities in reproductive care. Mm. So what, when they didn't want reproductive care, um, they were forced to get it. Now, when they want it, they can't get it because of the law. Wow. Now, just look at that dichotomy. And I mean, that's, I feel like we can see that with black women as well. Absolutely. And Hispanic women. Yeah, absolutely. So all this brings me to the, my final point about indigenous women. So, and for BIPOC women in general, right, um, yeah. obviously. So allowing BIPOC women to exert control over their own bodies and their own endeavors, endeavors rather, affords them, quote, too much power in society. Mm. And this would obviously end up in turning the racist or um, white supremacist gendered hierarchy upside down. And for the people in control of the hierarchy right now, the white men right. at the top of the government, this is unacceptable. So they're going to keep on doing this. Because this runs deep. I mean, this is like, this is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about biopower, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And how Crenshaw um, mentions that policing women's bodies, by POC women's bodies, happens in the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. but also in the healthcare system and, and the economic system and the political system. I, it's everywhere. I, I mean, I think, if anything, this is a great example of how intersectionality and biopower come into play together to just keep these women down in society in mm -hmm. all aspects of life. But I mean, thank you. That was such a wonderful overview. I learned so much. And I, and I just want to touch on this. This is one of the reasons that I'm so glad that we're working on this together, Rania, because obviously I'm a political science major mm. looking more at legal stuff. And you're pre-health, correct? Yeah, public health. Public yeah. health. So the way that intersects, haha, <laughs> another form of intersectionality, <laughs> um, is able, I can look at it from the lens of like the law but right. you can kind of look at it through the lens of health itself and we can bring that together in like an anthropological kind of lens that encompasses everything. Right, I think it's so important because when I read my studies um, and in my readings in class and such, you know, before I got to health policy, it was all about health outcomes. So I just get the consequence. So I'm just studying, okay, these women suffer at higher rates of this, this and this but I don't really get the why and the what's being done. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's where you come in. I think that's why we're such great partners. Yeah. We have, we complete each other. Aw, <laughs> that's so cute. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, you bring up such good points. And honestly, we could just clearly see how medical mistreatment in any sense um, leads to medical mistrust, because I'm sure 
just like black women and just like many other women of color, BIPOC women, they lose trust in the medical system when the medical system is hurting them. Absolutely. And this extends to all women who experience this and all humans who experience this. I mean, even if you are a male and you go to a doctor and you face fat phobia or you face um, someone you know who is homophobic, you're going to lose trust in that medical system. And Crenshaw even states how women specifically, their intersectionality explains how subordination of women is intensified by the disempowerment of belonging to a minority race and population, again, intersectionality. And this is visualized through political, economic oppression, mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of oppression, as we just mentioned, and contributes to their disparate health outcomes. And I mean, I, I think this is why we need to talk about implicit bias because it plays such a big role, right? Yeah, so exactly. It, implicit bias is an unfortunate, but it's an important truth that we ha have to explore because it obviously plays a role into medical mistrust. The two can't be looked at in isolation. Um, but doesn't this take both the patient and provider? Because I'm pretty sure that physicians um, can give us a little more insight about how their intersectionality has shaped their own experiences in, again, the white do male dominated field, because just like politics, like I mentioned before, yeah. it's a white man's game. So this brings me to a great point because I know you interviewed your own physician. Yes. So tell me a little more about that. Thank you for asking. I've been waiting to tell you about this, honestly. Um, so yes, I did interview a physician of mine who identifies as female and Hispanic. And she did ask to remain anonymous, obviously. I thought protecting her identity would make her more comfortable in sharing her experience. But I mean, especially because she wants to remain at her current practice, her opening up to me about her struggles in the white male dominated space was you know, a little bit iffy. So she will be anonymous, but um, she allowed me to talk about what we spoke about in the interview on this podcast. Some of the initial questions I asked her were things like, did you experience any prejudice, whether it be outward racism, microaggressions, or barriers in your process of becoming a physician? Um, or as a woman of color, do you think that your experiences as a practicing physician differs from the white males? How so? Do you notice that specific communities, especially by POC women, are more hesitant to trust doctors and treatments and treatment plans? And do you ever feel like patients doubt your ability as a physician due to your gender and race? Uh, so general questions along those lines. Well, I guess they're not very general, but <laughs> questions along those lines. Tell me about her answers. Yeah. So actually, they were really hopeful and positive for what I was expecting. Um, but she did note that she's been really blessed with the support and respect in her latter years of her practice, mm -hmm. but does acknowledge that that's maybe because of where she's practicing. Um, so where she practices is actually a neighborhood that is predominantly an immigrant population and predominantly Hispanic. So she did note that that's probably why she feels very comfortable and doesn't experience a lot of um, kind of people doubting her, people expressing racism or sexism. They can trust her more. They can trust her more. In fact, she even does mention people seek her out because she speaks Spanish fluently and so she can kind of bridge that gap, right? Um, but about the question uh, about patient hesitancy, she did note later that the patients who tend to mistrust her are usually the older men who mm -hmm. um, 
usually our, our sticklers about her age, they say things like, oh, well, you're really young. Can I get a second opinion? Um, you know, someone with more experience. And they kind of say no offense, but of course it is offensive. Yeah. That doesn't undo the offense. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, she she did say that most of her patients are racially or ethnically um, belong to a minority population and her bilingualism and the fact that she accepts Medicaid and, and a lot of other insurance makes her um, a more trustworthy source for a lot of these people. But she did say that, you know, she does have to work harder than people at her practice to prove herself. Um, so it's kind of, again, the equity versus um, equality like she's not starting out on a level playing field she's not starting out at the same point she has to assert her dominance prove time and time again i mean she said that she said i feel like i need to prove myself and i think you know kimberly crenshaw talks about how susan moore had to perform and i think this is a, a reality for most by poc women they have to perform and behave in certain ways and constantly have it in the back burner that they are behaving against stereotypes and trying to break them and trying to um, prove themselves and prove otherwise. And that is really stressful and can take a toll on someone, which which honestly it does, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, those were some of her answers. I think that it wasn't really surprising to hear that some of the male patients were doubting her, mm -hmm. but... Um, I mean, I'm glad that it is working for her to be in that community and feel like she's actually making a difference. Yeah, and that goes back to the the patriarchy, the white male patriarchy, of course. I'm gonna say it again. It's a white man's game Yeah. that um, she's trying to overcome that we're all trying to overcome. How does that make you feel as a white man? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, as as a white man, like, and I feel like this might be like a, like a stereotypical, especially around this campus, but it really is the truth that like I have like so much power, yeah. And but I have to use it to uplift other people, right? And it's easy. It's much easier said than done because it's a lot of work to actually do. But even I believe that even beginning to talk about this kind of stuff and recognize it is important in getting other people to know. Because imagine if a bunch of people listen to this podcast and they're like, "Wait, I never thought about that before." <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if they went out and they did something about I it? I mean, that's the point of Ish Matters. This is why I talk about because, things that matter. Because Ish really matters, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, okay, so you bring up a really important point. So education, that's what we're all about. Let people know. Um, and speaking of which, this is a really good segue, actually, into um, talking about... In Crenshaw's podcast, she talks about um, how she asks her physicians about the education they received, which I actually did ask the physician I interviewed. And, you know, surprisingly, she said she received a pretty good education surrounding different races and, and um, you know, being like culturally sensitive and all. But the physicians on Crenshaw's podcast noted that they still learned about different quote unquote skins and genetic differences based on race, which for those of you who don't know, has been proven false time and time again. There are no differences based on race in terms of the category, the social categorization of race. In fact, less than 1% of genetic differences do not fall into racial boxes. Also tangent, tangent, lawmakers, not biologists, have invented the social categories of race. Yeah. And so we are taking what lawmakers and politicians have created and calling it science. So when we're talking about genetic research that tells us 
African Americans have a higher risk of diabetes, for example, we're looking at a fundamentally flawed methodology that is inevitably going to produce false results. You can't take a study with a flawed methodology and produce results that you can actually use. And I mean, this kind of genetic research assesses genetic differences merely based on social identity, the box you check when you go in to fill out a form, which is a socially constructed idea, not a difference in genome. So if we want to do genetic research, we should examine the genome, not the box someone checks on a paper. And my point in this tangent and bringing it up is that when the physicians on Crenshaw's podcast noted learning about these things, we have to understand the implications. Implicit bias is not benign. It's produced in medical schools where they learn outdated science that informs their knowledge about racial differences. And then basically that's how they behave as physicians later. That's how they treat their patients. And Again, it's it's not benign. This is fatal. And we see that with Dr. Suzanne Moore Absolutely. and millions and millions of other BIPOC women. They die as a result, as a direct result of not getting the care they need. So I was wondering about when you interviewed your physician, how does she address health issues of BIPOC given her familiarity with those structural roots um, in the health in health disparities? So I did. I know you might have said that you were going to ask her about that. I did. That. I did. Thank you so much for bringing it up. I actually totally forgot. But so I asked her, basically, when someone comes in, say, with asthma, right, and you know they come from a very polluted neighborhood, or that's just an example, but basically, how do you address health outcomes that are rooted in structural injustices like poverty, poor housing, lack of education, lack of insurance? And I was really pleased to hear that. First of all, she does agree that there are certain trends and patterns that she can pick up on from people who come from certain neighborhoods. They tend to experience similar health outcomes. But she said she always tries to take an upstream approach. That's a public health term, by the way. <laughs> um, Do enlighten me, please. Okay, yeah. So an upstream approach is rather than looking at the illness and giving you medication for the illness, yes, we do want to treat that, but we look at the illness and we try to say, okay, what is making this happen? What is making it worse? And what is making it stay? Mm. And that is an upstream, going down and picking at the root, right? It's kind of like exactly how public health started with um, Jon Snow, mm -hmm. if, if you're familiar with that. Nope. <laughs> um, we'll link it below. <laughs> Another thing to link below. Please make note of that, Callan. Yes. Um, but yeah, she tries to take an upstream approach and educate them about why this might be happening and give them some tangible tips as to how to deal with it because obviously sometimes you can't fix your own barriers such as mm. poor housing. You can't just go out and find better housing. That's not a reality for many, um, especially those from lower socioeconomic classes, but yeah. Well, I will be certain to look up Jon Snow. Okay. Um, so, and I think with that, we can start talking about why learning about the history of um, BIPOCs, BIPOC women in medicine is so important to preserving and promoting their own health, the own health of BIPOC women. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I was taking a dramatic sip of water. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, recent policy, I think it's important to mention, of course, recent policy uh, addressing BIPOC women's experiences in healthcare have made an effort to prevent medical malpractice and unethical research, but I mean, again, why is it in the first place that 
these women need movements and policies mm -hmm. and legal action and campaigns to advocate for equal medical treatment, something so basic and fundamentally human. And why is it that these women fear the very services that have sworn to help them, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, as you mentioned, Callan, these questions can only be answered by confronting the past and present of these women and their treatment by medical professionals. And to do so, we must confront the medical knowledge production, how it was made, how medical knowledge came to be in the progression and the evolution of it, and how it has actually always accepted race as a factor of difference when it's not. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I completely agree. And it makes me think back to um, Kimberly Crenshaw's podcast. Um, I think there was one point she, she articulated it pretty powerfully um, when talking about black women. Misogynoir lurks behind the white coat. And I think the fluid nature of medicine does not mean that things have changed for all. And this quote really illustrates that. And to further highlight this, I want to present some statistics to yes, you, Rania, the numbers. and um, <laughs> all of our listeners um, about this stuff. So indigenous women are approximately three times as likely as white women to die of pregnancy-associated causes like sepsis. And in part, this can be traced back to a high rate of obesity among indigenous women who are 50% more likely to be obese than their white female counterparts. Do you think that's also um, kind of rooted in food deserts, food swamps, Absolutely. social determinants of health, mm -hmm. that obesity part? It all goes back together. Mm. It all ties into each other, Yeah, obviously. Well, I mean, those are shocking nonetheless. I, I mean, I knew there were disparities for indigenous women, but the numbers are tragic given we're in 2022 and have known about this for decades. Yeah, and I know that there are just as shocking statistics for black women, correct? Yes, I mean, oh God, there's so much research. Not enough, but so much. It's still not enough, which says something. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Black women have four times higher the rates of pregnancy-related deaths than their white counterparts. They have twice as high an infant mortality rate. They receive less pain management medication. They wait longer in emergency rooms than their white counterparts. Um, they suffer higher rates of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and just like indi indigenous women, um, obesity. And I mean, that's not because they are genetically inferior, uh, it's because of the social determinants of health we talked about uh, and the lack of adequate treatment. But mm -hmm. um, I know earlier I, I was talking about genetic differences and how we assess that in, med in medicine. And I know um, when we were discussing this independently outside of this episode, you mentioned that you found something about uh, medication specifically created for black individuals who suffer heart disease. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me more about that and the implications of race-based medicine, quote unquote. Yeah, absolutely. And so I know earlier when we discussed the issue with race-based medicine, it was from Dorothy Roberts' pieces that we read together. Right? Yes, yes. Sorry, I, I forgot to mention um, the author. So Dorothy Roberts, she actually has a TED Talk. We'll link it below. Another note, <laughs> we need to link that below. Yep. Um, she highly criticizes uh, what I was talking about earlier, the idea of genetic research based on race rather than genome. 
Um, but thank you for mentioning her. But yeah, back to race-based medicine. Talk to us about that. Sure. So in our in that conversation about Dorothy Roberts' criticism, um, so we talked about how genetic research groups people by race, expecting to yield information about genetic difference. Yet race doesn't add any relevant information to this, and it tends to play a significant role in the treatment of patients. An example of this is how it mistakenly informs that need for race-specific medicine. The example um, we mentioned just a little earlier that Roberts explores was Bidil. I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. Um, Mm -hmm. A medication used to treat heart failure um, in self-identified black patients. She explained that offering a solution to a racial gap in mortality implies the gap stems from racial differences in disease and drug response. This is a critique of the oversimplification of the overrepresentation of self-identified black patients in cardiovascular illnesses to genetic predisposition. And that ignores those social determinants of health that are in the roots of this disparity. Exactly, I mean, she makes such a good point and you you lay it out perfectly, but just in simpler terms, it's um, really taking a problem and blaming it on something that's completely irrelevant and then prescribing the solution based on that completely irrelevant scapegoat that you're using, Yeah. right? I mean, really, that's what it is, saying that you know, black individuals just are genetically unlucky mm-hmm. is a scapegoat in a way that you can justify turning a blind eye to the social determinants of health in the systems of oppression and racism and sexism that are actually at play here. But it completely disregards what we actually need to address. Um, and if you're okay with it, I, I really want to discuss the underrepresentation of BIPOC women in medical research because I think you brought that up and it's a really important part of all of this that we haven't touched on yet. So um, can, can I go on that tangent, please? <laughs> of course you can. Okay. Thank you. Just making sure. Am I going to tell you no? <laughs> you could. <laughs> okay. So... Um, so you did note that one of the reasons BIPOC women continue to suffer health disparities, despite advances in medicine and legislative efforts and their and their underrepresentation in medical research, is is that sorry, um, I'm getting excited. I can't talk anymore. <laughs> uh, what this actually looks like, though, is a lack of diversity in who pharmaceutical industries are testing medicine on, and you know who they're hiring as the people who test, the researchers. In fact, the Endometriosis Foundation um, pulls from some CDC reports, but puts it nicely. That's why I'm using that as my source. Published an article stating that in some research surrounding the treatment for uterine fibroids and cancer included fewer than 5% black patient participants, even though studies show that black women are the ones who suffer most from these conditions, which is crazy. And that when it comes to biomedical research, it that, that takes a look at um, ancestry to kind of determine predisposition, nearly 80% of participants self-identify as white, non-Hispanic white. So that's saying something about what kind of knowledge are we producing and when. So we go back to gynecology and, you know, Marion Sims tested all of his tools and procedures on black female slaves 
But now we're talking about modern day research where we no longer need those kinds of subjects to, you know, inflict pain upon without any painkillers. And suddenly we are shifting our focus to those we actually care about, which are the non-Hispanic white. Mm -hmm. um, when explaining why this is so significant, I like to use a quote often cited in the business world, funnily enough, you can't manage what you can't measure. And the fact of the matter is we are not measuring nearly enough of BIPOC women's health and how they react to treatment and what kind of treatments work best for the conditions they suffer most from, especially those who identify as women of color. And that has serious implications on their health that we just need to start talking about. Yeah. I, I did notice that you said that 5% of in that study of participants in that study, only 5% were black in a condition that overwhelmingly affects, excuse me, affects black individuals. Yeah. And so drawing upon that underrepresentation and something that we talked about previously, isn't that underrepresentation also also due to in part to medical mistrust? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think that the U.S.'s long history of unethical human research, starting again with gynecology, Tuskegee, Guatemala, and, you know, countless others, we have to understand that those are very valid reasons for medical mistrust and why, you know, these women might be a little hesitant to be participants as research subjects. Mm -hmm. Medical mistrust, though, here's the thing. I'm going to go on a little tangent. Medical mistrust is not paranoia. It's self-preservation. It's valid and it's justified in so many ways, but it's also hurting the populations who need medical treatment most. Not because they got unlucky with genetics again, but because there is a history, politics, economy, and society all working against them. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. We can see underrepresentation partially being due to medical mistrust, but that doesn't mean we can just brush it off and say, well, they don't want to participate. We have to address the medical mistrust, right? Yeah, but with the, the, the history, politics, economics that you mentioned behind that, how are we supposed to move forward? We can't tackle all of those systems of oppression um, and upend them overnight. But I, I guess we could start with education would be a good way. I think that would be a good way to start. I mean, start. yeah, educating our doctors about basically all of this conversation. Yeah. This whole, co all of the things we're talking about. How, like, genetic differences is completely false when they're based on racial categories, um, implicit bias, and how it's killing BIPOC women every day. I mean, you're right. It starts with knowledge. It starts and it ends with knowledge. Mm. I do wonder, though, when it comes to medical research, how do we begin to include BIPOC women more without unethically recruiting them? So I've learned about a little how monetary incentives may almost be a form of malpractice. I mean, think about it. You advertise a study with mm. compensation for like a few thousand dollars um, in a higher socioeconomic neighborhood, um, which probably statistically speaking is majority white. I'd agree. But um, <laughs> anyways, they have something to lose. They don't, they, they don't need it. And the privilege of not needing it, doesn't it give them the option to consent or not consent? Mm. Whereas if you go and put that same fire up in a neighborhood of lower socioeconomic class, 
and again, statistically speaking, it's probably populated by people of color. Don't, don't disagree. Don't, again. don't you risk advertising to people who really don't have a choice? A couple thousand dollars can be life-changing. So isn't that a little coercive? Like monetary incentives are tricky. They're tricky bioethical questions that I think we have to consider. And I'm still grappling with them myself. But what are your thoughts as a public health major? Oh, my God. I'm so glad you asked. It's such an excellent point you brought up. And I know we've had long talks about this on our own. But I actually did study this in a bioethics course. Um, shout out, Professor Kratzley, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> doubt it. But, um, well, first, I think you're right. I think it airs on the side of coercion and what is consent and what we need to actually obtain consent. But that's a podcast for next time. New idea, one on consent. But so your thoughts on how to move forward. I'm still grappling that with that myself on like a moral kind of level. Mm-hmm. Um, but for actual tangible things we could start doing, we need to advocate for better legislation protecting these vulnerable populations. We also need to address the fact that black researchers, male and female, are nearly 11% less likely to receive funding for biomedical research compared to their white counterparts, which is a big deal because, I mean, if all of your researchers look the same, you might still be a little mistrustful, right? Am I right? But it may seem like an unimportant thing in the grand scheme of things, but including these populations in research as both researchers and subjects in numbers proportional to their prevalence in the patient population of the disease being studied, again, that's important note, is essential to ensure medications are safe and effective and work on them and are accessible, Mm. most importantly, accessible to them, right? That's, I mean, that's such a good point. And I really had no idea how large that disparity in receiving funding for research was um, in, relation to race and race and gender. And I think that's just another reason why we have to address BIPOC as BIPOC women, as patients and as medical professionals, whether it be by physicians or researchers. I guess the fact of the matter is that BIPOC women in slavery and in freedom, they've pretty much suffered silently at the hands of medical professionals. And again, I think you might've said this earlier, but those who swore to protect to do no harm, to treat them, obviously haven't fulfilled those oaths. The Hippocratic oath, mm-hmm. yes. They have not fulfilled it. They have gone against it, actually. As we heard from the clip we put in earlier from um, Dr. Wyatt, I believe, I mean, these physicians are hurting these women and they get away with it because they're shielded by the white coat. Mm. But I think you bring up a really good point in slavery and in freedom. That's, that's really powerful. Um, yeah, I mean, they promise beneficence, non-maleficence, justice, trusted authority. They promise to do no harm, and yet here we are. It is the 21st century. It is 2022, and they are still doing harm and still being shielded by their white coat. Would it be fair to say that the Hippocratic Oath is more like the hypocritic? Oh. Ooh, the hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Good. <laughs> that was funny. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, God, where do we even go with this? Uh, by POC women, they, they remain sicker and they remain, they still have higher rates of premature death and disparate 
deaths um, to many illnesses, all illnesses, I'd say, actually. So how many more women do we have to bury before we listen to them, trust them, and trust them when they say they're in pain? How many more reports of racial disparities and negative health outcomes do we have to see before we trust that sexism and racism are fatal? And how those fatal ideologies and stereotypes lurk violently behind that trusted white coat that we so love and trust? I mean, Quote, unquote. I mean, do we love it? Do no, we trust not it? Really. No, no. <laughs> I mean, maybe as a white man, you do. Am I wrong? I mean... I, speaking from my own experience, mm. I've, I, tr I trust my doctor. Right. My doctor's a white man. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I can't say the same, but that is intersectionality for you yeah. in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. But I do want to acknowledge that throughout all of this, this is an issue that it's just not going to go away. I said earlier that there's nothing that's going to... Don't be a cynic. Give us a way out. <laughs> <laughs> but like, given those many systems of structural, political, and economic oppression that BIPOC women must fight against this, it's not an easy fight, nor is it a short one. It's not going to happen overnight. Right. But again, education. We can le at least begin by educating our generation and generations to come and hope that those fatal stereotypes... And, and the consequential distrust between patients and physicians is one less thing women have to worry about. A doctor's office like, should not be the last place by POC women feel unsafe, afraid, and avoid, avoidant of. Mm, yeah. I mean, education, that's so interesting. I know we're coming up on time, Callan. I'm sorry I'm taking so much of your time. No but, worries. You um, just got to tell me why it's interesting. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, that's an inside joke. Sorry, audience. Uh, but you say education. Here's what I'm wondering before we end. Um, when you say education, are you on the same page of this education needs to start early in different ways, of course, and this education should be mandated for all medical professionals? I think we need to like, you know, put it into legislation that to become a doctor and have that power and take the Hippocratic Oath, you need to be educated about this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think it's equitable at all for doctors to be going into the profession with this kind of prejudice, this bias mm. that can result, whether they know it or not, in the killing of by POC women's bodies, the disposal, dispose, disposal of their bodies. Sorry, I'm getting really passionate yeah, here. Yeah, keep going. I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I think. Yeah. So how do you think we can include this earlier on in life? Like what? in history classes, do you think we should be teaching this? Yeah. Um, I, I have a lot to say about Ooh, scary critical race theory, but it's it's it would help. It would. And critical race theory is people who scapegoat it. Frankly, it's bullshit. Um, okay. Not critical race theory itself. The people who bullshit it who right. think it's bad. That's bullshit. But because it needs to be included in all disciplines to make all disciplines equ equitable. You know, I I have a question for you. Actually, it's a genuine question. I don't know this, um, but. I didn't grow up here necessarily, and so I kind of missed out on what the U.S. teaches in history class. Did you go to a public school? So I did go to a public school. So I was lucky enough to go to a really diverse public school, um, 
and honesty, white was the minority at my high school, which oh, wow. really isn't normal, especially in the state of Connecticut. But so I took AP US history, if you've heard about that. I have, yes. Um, in my junior year. And what if I told you that the college board AP US curriculum skips over the Civil War? Wow. Because it's too controversial <gasps> for the whole country because Southern states don't want to teach it. Oh my God. Yeah. I was lucky enough to, my my teacher taught it to us anyway. He was like, frankly, like, like what the hell? Yeah. It's ridiculous that legislatures and the law has so much stake over dictating what people are taught. It's American history that we need to be talk about. So, and frankly, all this stuff about critical race theory and in some places, it wasn't even able to teach before because it was stuff about race and slavery and the history of all this was already being censored. Mm. So necessarily, it isn't really something new. But isn't that terrible? That is absolutely horrible. We have to go outside the curriculum to, right. to learn about the Civil right. War. Right, exactly, which is my point. And this is our point. Education, knowledge, this is what we need. This is going to be the first step. And I think... Again, Kellen, I could talk forever about this with you. And I would love to dig deeper with this topic, um, in this topic with you. And I think that we should do future research together. Sure, and please. I think that in our future research, maybe we can actually include by POC's w- women's like own words and own stories and mm. own experiences. Um, definitely something for another time because our research is not extensive. I mean, we do use great sources, but a lot of our sources, I'd say, come from white researchers in terms of statistics and things like that so yeah it would be nice to include um some personal narratives but mm. for now this has been such a good discussion and one we have to have more frequently and more openly not just between you and me Callan, but between all of us as a society absolutely uh, so thank you for joining me thank Honestly, you it's been great thank you for having me on the podcast oh my god of course are you kidding it's been an honor um we will my again <laughs> We will link everything we talked about down below. We will link Crenshaw's podcast, Dorothy's work, some TED Talks, and of course, our sources that we used for our research. Um, If you want to explore this topic more on your own, please feel free to contact me or Callan. I will also list his email below if that's okay with you. I'm putting you on the spot here. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) You should have seen his eyes. He was like, please don't do that. So maybe not. We'll discuss it more. Um, But yeah, with that, my friends, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay educated. Until next time. Thank you guys so much.